Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week's conversation is with Dr. Doug Weiser. This is the first opportunity that I have had to speak with a leader in a national pain group. And I found that Dr. Weiser's story was really interesting in describing how a couple pain practices in Virginia eventually grew into a private equity-backed group that has practices all up and down the eastern seaboard. And hearing him describe that growth trajectory and his role as a physician executive I just found it to be a really interesting career track. We talked about MSOs, we talked about leadership, we talk about specifically in this episode, what kind of deal a physician might expect if they want to sell their practice to a group like National Spine and Pain. So as always, thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome to episode 117 of APM Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by our special guest, Dr. Douglas Weiser. Dr. Weiser is the CEO of National Spine and Pain Centers, and he's here to talk to us today about a whole host of interesting topics as it relates to his organization, COVID, providing succession plans for physicians and their practices, and many other things. So, Dr. Weiser, thanks for joining us today. Sure. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me on. So, for those who aren't familiar, take a minute and describe what is NSPC and how did you come to be where you are currently? Sure. Uh, NSPC, uh, National Spine and Pain Centers, is a MSO. It's a management services organization, right? So, it's a consolidation of interventional pain management practices across 13 states now, mostly the Eastern Seaboard, but also Illinois and Texas. So we provide the supportive services that facilitate growth. You know, I think at the end of the day, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell tipping point will be probably EMR mandates, right? When when practices had to roll out EMR, you know, yes, they had $44,000 of incentive per doc. But then the maintenance of, of EMR and the IT department growth within your practice, it was almost the nightis to, hey, if we want to stay autonomous as independent physicians and not get rolled up by a hospital system, we're going to probably have to come together and share some of the expenses of that, right? So at the end of the day, it's a consolidation of the administrative services that provide interventional pain management practices all the support from 401k plans for employees, uh, you know, from compliance programs, from digital marketing programs, compliance, legal support. So defraying that cost over multiple practices keeps those costs down and allows people to maintain independence. Can you talk a little bit about your career trajectory and how you landed as the CEO of this MSO? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I didn't set out to be a CEO. This was not my DNA, right? I'm an army trained in a classical military fashion. So in a lot of ways, just some of the leadership principles I had learned before I went to medical school applied and it was logistics uh, that makes this work. But I joined after, you know, so I got out after 9-11 in 2002, joined the group, which was known as Capital Spine and Pain in Virginia. They were 25 years old. They had pain in their name before there was even a specialty pain management. They could see that coming and the advent of fluoroscopy. I came, I brought all these kind of newer technologies like nucleoplasty and distroid arthroplasty, annuloplasty, stem, and et cetera. And uh, we were doing it in the office setting because Virginia is a CON state for ASCs. So we grew that from four locations when I joined to 12. We had 
20 doctors, 10 of which were partners and 10 of which were employed docs. And we were getting kind of skittish about signing for our own loans. You know, uh, we'd have to have our spouse come in and sign for growth for these loans. Some of the doctors were getting into their late fifties and like, Hey, what's the exit strategy? How do we do this? And so along the way I had watched advanced pain management in Wisconsin. So I had seen the Exolier deal and Chicago growth partners, but also my brother was a regulatory attorney in DC and he was instrumental in the early innings of pediatrics who became Mednax. And so I talked to Roger Modell, who is the physician CEO of that group and how they went from 15 neonatologists in Florida to a nationwide publicly traded organization. And in my mind, I thought it was inevitable that we were going to have to do this. I mean, we had seen capitation and physical therapy, you know, the idea that you could just do as many facets and many SIs as you wanted, you know, that just, it, it had a lifeline. And then the epidural meningitis scare of, you know, of the breakout of compounding really had all of us thinking like, what, what happens if the stroke of a pen, we lose a third of our reimbursement, right? So all of that kind of got me to talk to my partners about, you know, it might not be a horrible idea to kind of monetize some of the equity we had built in that organization that would allow the 10 doctors who were wanting to be partner, but not necessarily creating as much revenue for the group to be called partner, that would get rid of the glass ceiling for them. They could then be fee for service and not have to worry about partnership votes and all this. So for us, it was a really great experience to go to market. We actually almost did it four years earlier, but my partners voted against it saying, hey, we can fund our own growth. Let's keep doing this. And then when we went back, I showed them that our EBITDA was exactly the same as it was, even though we had grown in multiple more locations the cost to do that, you know, and to invest in the organization. We weren't further along in profitability. But anyway, that's, you know, the that's how I be- became part of a private equity owned organization. And then I kept seeing patients and, but I had a pension for growth. So I helped Virginia grow, you know, from 6 million of EBITDA to, to 18 million of EBITDA in a five-year run with our first sponsor. So that kind of 3x growth would was you know exciting. So they kept deploying me. Hey, could you go talk to the doctors in Long Island or maybe the doctors in this state and see if you can help develop a business plan for them and so that they could replicate what you were doing. All the while, I just kept seeing patients and I would do it at nights and weekends. And eventually we tried on, you know, as we got bigger, we brought in a couple MBAs to run the organization. So initially we had a physician CEO from Maryland, Mark Love, and myself as president. Eventually, you know, private equity encouraged us to hire a professional MBA CEO. And we did that twice and both times was just not a good fit for whatever reason. uh, At least in my experience, interventional pain physicians are very entrepreneurial. Understanding this business, if you're not a physician, it's complex. And so eventually they just said, you know, it seems like you have a good grasp of this. We can teach you the you know blocking tackling of being a CEO, but uh, you teaching a non-physician the blocking and tackling of this organization seems like it's not working as well. So why don't you try this on? So that was a couple of years ago, uh, coming up on four years I've been CEO. Awesome. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned the leadership and logistics background in the military. I'm curious if you have any like go-to resources or seminal books or podcasts or things that you really like in that vein? Because this is an area in which I'm always trying to grow as well. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. 
I think it's an it's a combination of you know it could be Tony Robbins uh, inspirational podcast where you know tweaks your interest. It could be a, a Bob Proctor, you know, a Canadian kind of guru, you know, uh, Collins book here or there. It's kind of ad hoc, you know, something that I'll grab it's my attention and say, hey, that's pretty applicable to what we're doing. It tends to be more podcast now than you know slogging through a book because you can get through it pretty quickly. And so yeah. I'm a big fan of Jim Collins as well. So he's the good to great guy and has, he's a, a famous researcher and he, he loves to try to understand what is it that distinguishes really renowned organizations that have the staying power. He did two great podcast episodes with Tim Ferriss. If anybody who's interested in checking those out to unpack basically in a long form conversation, the his research and some of the things that he's found. And now he's a very expensive consultant, I think out now in Colorado or something, but he's a, a business maven whom I have long admired. So yeah, I like Michael Porter's work on strategy. No, but it could be the guy who helped Chick Fil A develop their, you know, thank you and uh, is my pleasure mantra. I mean, like grabbing little snippets of time or listening to other people describe some of the challenges they had. Just are universal. You can apply them to universal business principles. In fact, most of the time, if my team will tell you when I'm talking about businesses, I often use taco stands. You know, there's only you know, so many ways we can build a taco stand, right? And people don't want to think about that, but healthcare uh, services, but at the end of the day, whether you're Best Buy or whether you're National Spine, you need volume, right? And volume is dictated by ease of access and price. And so I think about it very simplistically when I think about, and then I work backward into, all right, what is our, the dynamics of our model that we can follow those principles? I, I give this one, I gave this one talk about, you know, I read an article, for example, about that we could land a shuttle on Mars within one six hundredth of a quasar or some denomination, even as a scientist I'd never heard of. And I thought, you know, there's got to be some universal business truths that exist too, you know, like supply and demand and all these things that you can apply and with equal certainty, if you follow those principles, you know, you can succeed. So as an MSO, tell me a little bit about sort of the I'm sure there's like a menu of services and how much, you know, if I'm a practice owning physician and I'm interested in partnering with something like an NSPC, are there things that I can like say, yes, yes, no, no, yes. As I'm looking down the menu of the things that you described. Well, that's a great question. It's more, honestly, it's an evolution as an organization, right? So I would say in the early innings, when we were loosely affiliated confederacy of states of practices that just shared some basic things. The, the answer was yes. But I think, you know, over time, this, this idea that all healthcare is local is giving way, whether we like that or not, you know, consolidation in the healthcare space is happening. And, and if it weren't, you know, for example, you wouldn't see Cleveland Clinic buying a hospital in Florida, but they're leveraging that brand, right? And the only way you can create scale is to create a consolidated platform. So, there's less a la carte on the menu side than there used to be, right? That's just the reality. I used to sit in the board meetings when we were in the early innings. And I can remember there's a guy from Sentinel, David Lobel, who said, hey, you guys have done a really nice job building a large, small business. But what we'd like is for you to build a small, large business. And, you know, that always has stuck with me as we made this transition you can't create scale without making some of the a la carte menus mandatory, right? You cannot get the scale you're looking for. I used to sit in the meeting in the boardroom every quarter and say, you know, you guys keep talking about scale. I keep asking, if not now, when? I do have now in the, you know, on a look back nine years later, working with private equity, what I where I think the numbers shake out on when you can achieve scale. But 
for, for certain, you have to kind of sacrifice for the greater good, more and more components of that autonomy if you're going to create a business that actually creates scalable value in the marketplace. Can you talk through a couple of those key components? Well, IT, again, you know, so I told you the tipping point of people seeking consolidation is typically a couple things, right? So I think about it like, all right, well, why would someone join an MSO or sell to private equity or however you want to frame this up, right? It's, it reminds me of the military, right? Why would anyone volunteer to join the military? There's only three reasons, right? So A, it's a family business. Everyone in my family served, you know, B, there's a sentinel event like 9-11 and extreme patriotism. And three is I needed the money, right? Like I needed the opportunity. It's the same thing conceptually with MSO. There's only a few reasons someone who owns a private practice would consider selling, right? So it's very different, but it doesn't take long to get to the heart of the matter, right? Are you trying to monetize some of the equity? Are you trying to create a succession plan? And invariably, the kind of the the obstacles of getting someone to say, I'm ready, typically comes down to only a couple objections, right? One of us fear of loss of autonomy, right? Like, hey, man, I'm a private practitioner. I like to do what I like to do. And the last thing I want is this big organization coming in and making it bureaucratic and telling me what to do. You know, we're an MSO, so we can't tell people what to do clinically. We can create best practice guidelines that the affiliated physicians in our organizations have created, and we can disseminate them, but we can't tell them how to practice, right? So the other thing I tell them all the time is me, is like, look, I, I know your biggest concern is going to be, I'm going to come in and be heavy handed. Look, I could tell you that you have to now work Saturdays, but you wouldn't listen anyway, right? Like I could, you know, there's no sense pretending that I have I'm going to be heavy handed because this is a true partnership, right? Like if we're all going to benefit from the value of coming together, you know, you know better about your organization, what's going to make it work. I'm trying to supercharge it. So, so I love how you mentioned like a couple sort of things that physicians who are talking to you have in common, maybe describe a couple of prototypical conversations that you have for physicians who are interested in joining an SPC. Well, one of the drivers for us and, and is a big driver in the marketplace right now is our perception as professionals of where cap gains is going, right? Like, so for us, we were like, well, Obama's taken over. I mean, does anyone think capital gains tax is going to go down anytime soon? And that got us to think about like, maybe we should monetize equity at a favorable cap. And it, now we're having the same discussion now with Biden. I, you know, all of a sudden people I've been talking to for two years have a sense of urgency. Hey, we got to get this deal done this year. It's like, wait a minute, we've been talking for two years. You've been telling me you're not ready and I've been patient. And now it's like, we have to do this tomorrow. So uh, that's one of the drivers, right? Like in these conversations is I want some equity taken out of the business, but I also want to, to be mindful of my tax burden. So that's one. The other driver typically, you know, to circle back around, why would people do this is administrative burden has grown really heavy. And like 2012, when we had the meningitis scare, now we have the COVID scare, right? Like, yeah, we got some PPE money, but like that money ran out. Uh, you know, now Medicare's docking me, to, you know, on a on a clawback, and I can't go it alone again. I can't, you know, with a Delta variant and not sure what's going to happen in the business world. I need a partner because there's a fear factor of of the unknown. And so that's another example of like market conditions tend to can really push the enthusiasm of the doctor seller. Let's talk about that capital gains thing for a minute, because this is interesting. And I was actually reading an article this morning, maybe describe for a minute, just what, you know, we're talking about what a capital gain is if we sort of understand what that means, but talk about a physician over the course of owning a practice over time, 
the the basis that they have in that practice and then the increased value. Just describe that dynamic. Yeah, look, I'm not the tax expert, right? But in simplistic terms, if you get a multiple for your business, and let's just say we're going to give you five years worth of earnings up front, that earnings based on whatever their basis is, whatever is the excess of that is going to be taxed at a capital gains rate rather than ordinary income. Right. And that might be, I don't know what it is, 29% or whatever it is now in federal versus kind of or your ordinary burden now that's, you know, in the 40 range. So if you did the math on, look, I'm getting five years as if I did the work today up front, but it's actually on a post tax basis, maybe it's worth seven years. And if you're 52 years old and you're like, man, I'm going to get seven years worth of cash in my hand and I can diversify and invest other places in a post tax, you know, value. That's a pretty powerful event. I sold my practice when I was 44 years old. I can assure you my accountant and financial advisors both said, you're an idiot. There's no way that this makes sense. I had to do a waterfall analysis that was larger than I used to, because I had nine partners. I took it to their house or met with them. I rolled it out. It was on a big architectural you know, tube paper. And I put every variable in there I could think of. What do we think is going to happen to our employed docs? Are they going to make more or less? What do we think is going to be the reimbursement rates from Medicare for epidurals and facets, more or less? And I put in every variable I could think of. And in every scenario, because of the tax advantages of a cap gains versus ordinary, it made sense even for me at 44. My accountant was blown away. He's like, look, I, I, if I didn't do this exercise with you, I would have never supported this. But there's no doubt that in every scenario you can think of getting this money now and paying off some of your debt and you know paying for your kids education and having that locked and loaded if you're responsible with it unlike a you know maybe a professional athlete who wants to go out and buy fancy cars and stuff is if you're smart with this money up front you can win and i will tell you i sold this business with the virginia partners in 2012 9 years later all 10 of us are still with the group and that was the, you know, that that's probably the one benchmark I'm most proud of because I pushed the envelope with my partners thinking strategically this was the plan to go. But I would have, I felt the burden of this working for everybody. And the fact that everyone's still with us, look, I, to be certain, any one of those other nine partners will tell you on a given day why they would have done it better if we stayed the course or whatever. But I think most of us staying is proof positive that our plan was solid. You mentioned reimbursement a couple of times. So I'm interested in, First of all, getting your thoughts on sort of where we're at right now with the reimbursement conversation. And secondly, what are the systemic risks that you're kind of, as you're sort of sitting at the top of the mast and looking out towards the horizon, what are the things that you and your leadership team are seeing as things that you're trying to prepare for, for your specialty? Look, if you listen to the Biden administration, you know, everybody's going to be paid in value-based care program in the next few years. And what that really means is you're going to get your check from someone besides Medicare, right? And for me, what really, and again, going back to the, what are the non-negotiables, we have to be on one data mark, one EMR so that we can demonstrate value and outcomes because value-based care and pain has been a challenge, right? Like, like diabetes, you know, where you can measure hemoglobin A1C is a kind of an easy benchmark for success. Well, when it comes to chronic pain, you know, someone having less reported pain or a net promoter score or Google star rating. I mean, it's very difficult to measure the outcome, unlike cardiology, which is life or death, and get what we agree is a good value-based outcome. What you should care about as a payer or as a self-funded employer, what represents value? We have been working very hard on that. We have some interesting projects going on and opiate reduction data on 
on cost basis when they go to other specialists versus a pain management doctor, on our cost for care. You know, as an example, an epidural performed as a ho- at a hospital outpatient setting is 14 times more expensive than an office-based setting. So, you know, the idea that transparency you know, is inevitable. I've been preaching this for a long time that, you know, I said up in the earlier part that every business requires ease of access and price. We don't talk about price. So we're, we're doing a lot to shape our, the direction we're going to go. What is value-based care? How do we define a really great outcome in pain management? And I think they did well in the in the renal space with chronic renal failure, right? Like which patients did better avoiding dialysis sooner. And I, I think that's where we're headed inevitably as we talk to government in terms of chronic care. And then there's the other side of our business, which is, you know, acute and subacute musculoskeletal disease and surgical outcomes versus our outcomes. And I think we're we're going to be well positioned for those discussions as well. I'm curious as to the vetting process, if a practice comes to you and they, they say, we really like what you're doing, we love the infrastructure and we, we want to participate and we want the liquidity event so we can diversify our personal finances and all those things. Uh, I'd imagine it's a bit like a dating <laughs> where there's a, there's a mutual analysis going on. So from the NSPC side, what are you looking for in practices that you use to assess this physician, this practice will be a good long-term fit and partner for us? Yeah, it starts with clinical you know, acumen, right? Like, how do you, how do you see the world of patients in chronic pain? Do you think about patients, you know, who can be responsibly managed with opiate, but you're not egregious about it? Are you doing things? Are you unidimensional on your use of spinal cord stim neuromodulation? Are you 50% modulation? Are you 50% workers comp or personal injury? Like, we try to get a sense of, are, are you like us? Are we, I mean, are we a good fit for you? Are you a good fit for us on how we think of the world clinically? So that's number one, right? And, and I think that's pretty easy to see almost in the waiting room, right? It's not very hard to see, all right, wh- what's the throughput here? How are you treating patients? How do you think about, you know, axial low back pain? I might ask a clinical vignette, you know, like a three minutes or less, you know, how do you think about that? Do you believe in, you know, discogenic pain and fusion and, you know, inst- instability and, so first and foremost, it just starts with a clinical lens. And then it is, all right, what do you want to happen after day one, right? If I do my job well, and we do this merger, day one should look a lot like the day before you sold, right? Like there's nothing going to happen magically where all of a sudden we've come in and we've changed everything. Because at the end of the day, we, want, we, we are looking for businesses that are successful and poised for more growth. So the last thing I want to do is disrupt it day one. I want to you know, get my feet wet, understand uh, the metrics internal and start planning out things, whether it be name change or whether it be an EMR change or data mark consolidation, you know, usually we're you know, the fastest thing to move over is finances, right? We need to be on one PL sheet for our sponsors. So we, we tend to move quickly on that. We move quickly on HR, like, Hey, I haven't seen a scenario yet why, where a an organization that we acquire doesn't get better benefits. So that wins over employees pretty quickly. Like, wow, I get better healthcare, better 401k match and all these things. So day one tends to be a good day for them. But then from there, we start to think about where, where do you want to take this practice? You know, where are the opportunities to grow? Is it, is, is it de novo growth? You have an idea of a few communities that are underserved. Is it, Hey, I, ha- I know a few private practitioners that if we rolled them up under the umbrella, we would have better market share. So it really is just, during the diligence process, 
know, buying and holding is not a strategy, right, for private equity. I mean, you can get some arbitrage by buying it five times and trading it 10 times, but that's not the goal. The goal is to bring together a value base. And if the consumer really sees your brand as the reputable leader, that they start seeking you out without any effort, because by name, they know they're going to have a great experience, like the Cleveland Clinic or the Mayo Clinic, at least reputable experience, we'll say. If they know that this is the, then then branded awareness day one creates value for them when we make that change. So that's what we're headed towards rather than the old, hey, all healthcare is regional. Let's not touch it. Let's, let's loosely tie together and find out what things we can borrow from each other. It's kind of a hybrid, right? That was the old model. The, the end game would be like the Cleveland Clinic where everyone knew National Spine by name. You know, they would send their uncle and their aunt and their, you know, mother and father in a different state. But in, in between, it's kind of going from here to there. Do you have any practice sort of anecdotes where either an acquisition or a practice partnering with you went particularly well? And what was it that characterized the success of that for the physician and for that practice? For me, it's one physician in that group has an unquenchable desire to build something more, right? That's the that's the intangible. So a lot of times I'll talk to doctors and I'll say, you know, a lot of doctors will say, I want to do private equity, but you guys have a lot of the key players on the bench already. Like there's no room for me to be that guy. So I want to do it myself, you know, because I want to be that guy. And, you know, the first part is that's just not true. I mean, I have more trouble finding people who really want to grow than I do the opposite, right? Where I have too many people who want to grow and I have to rein them all in. That's just that's not how this works. This is the 90-10, right? Like you find one in 10 who, in my experience, a lot of doctors who think they want to grow are fascinated with M&A, but they don't want to grow in a multitude of ways that you can grow beyond M&A. And it's a lot of dinners and it's a lot of nights and it's a lot of time spending with people. And if you, if we find a practice that has that type of leadership within it, then they're going to be very successful as a general rule. And I'm sure you're going to ask, well, what's the flip side? <laughs> when do things not go well, right? And yeah, you know, that scenario is when a doctor wipes his hands of the practice and says, it's your problem now. You know, like, that it would that we could be so great that we could just be this central organization and the day after sale, the doctor can disengage. You know, it just it doesn't work. And the 90s are littered with the five cores of the world, buying out doctors and failing miserably. And that's, you know, that's this, the delicate balance. I think private equity is going to have again some failures. There's no doubt. It's, we're a tough group to lead as physicians. We, we don't love to be managed. So finding ones who want to continue to be leaders is the key, I think. Yeah, and I think there's a great sort of teaching moment here for any any physician who's thinking about a succession plan for their practice, meaning like, how are you going to have continuity beyond just you? This is probably like a 10-year question and strategy and plan that has to be played out because as you noted, it's not like if you're running a race and you're going to hand the baton of your practice off, you can't just chuck the baton, hope that someone catches it, and then have them continue the success. It's got to be a process whereby the thing that you've built and all the value that you've generated for all your patients and the reputation you have in the community and all of the, you know, that can be transferred seamlessly because that's where the value is. And I had a conversation with Larry Alisco prior episode. I'll, uh, I'll find the link and throw it in the show notes for everybody where we talked about the, it's important for the acquirer, or in this case, you know, the, the MSO to be able to have the conservation, uh, the, the continuity to have that carry forward because that's how the buyer is going to get the value. And so if you want a big number for your business, you need a clean handoff or else it's going to be a disaster for everyone. 
Yeah. I mean, in the early innings too, right? I mean, you could have earnouts, you know, and then earnouts became from a compliance perspective, just taboo. You can't have earnouts, right? So we have retained buckets to make sure that we ensure at least continuity of RVUs. Like, are you going to at least come to work? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how this is structured in terms of, you know, a, a transaction structure and then sort of the, the job description, if and how it changes? Sure. As my president, Doug Badisher, likes to say about offices, you see one office, you've seen one office. It's the same with a deal, right? You've seen one deal, you've seen one deal. Typically, obviously, when you're acquired by private equity, they want to see that you've got skin in the game. And skin in the game can come in a multitude of ways. So, right, if you are an ASC-based practice, you might retain 30% ownership of your ASC. And that's a simple way for the buyer to say, hey, look, you own 30%. It's in your best interest to continue to see patients, develop interventional best practice algorithms and grow that and find other doctors who want to come in as well. And we'll both dilute ourselves in equity and we'll let younger doctors buy in. But it's easy to find that alignment with an ASC. And an office-based setting is challenging because first off, there's not a lot of margin in the office setting for one, right? So it could be done where, hey, look, you know what? We're going we're gonna to give you a X amount of dollars up front, but we're going to ask that you roll over 15 or 20% of those proceeds into the parent MSO stock. That's the way every deal in, in my early part of my career in this company was done. There's pluses and minuses to both of all of these, by the way. The, the pluses of being vested in the MSO is you care about the organization's growth and health. The minuses are for a doctor who's entrepreneurial, you maybe get frustrated by the performance of other states where you have no influence, right? So the parent company return is, you know, my state's doing fine. My practice is doing its part, but like, what's the deal with that state or what's the deal with this? And, and if you're not part of the fixing it, then you just get frustrated. And the other thing is, is that because you're not doing quarterly distributions, doctors tend to forget about that component of their investment, right? Like they care about quarterly cash flow. They don't care as much about, hey, in three to five years, I'm going to get another bite of the apple. Now, no one's ever sent the check back to be certain. But, you know, I find that, you know, they lose sight sometimes investing in hold co at the top level for a couple of reasons, you know, not, you know, sense of control, you know, it's three to five years. I'm not thinking about that now. So, and again, I'm on my third bite of the apple. So I've seen a lot of this, right? So the other way to do it is to say, hey, you know, rather than invest in hold co where you might not have as much influence in the outcome, why don't you reinvest at the practice level? You're going to own 30% of your practice or 20% of your practice. And so it's any combination of that that creates rollover equity that we try to lock in alignment. If nothing else, we're aligned on this succeeding, right? It could be a little bit of stock at the parent company, a little bit of ownership of your ASC, a little bit of the practice, whatever works and whatever is legal in your state. You know, this is another thing, right? Like in the corporate practice of medicine, each state has different nuanced points of what you can and can't do. So at the end of the day, we want everyone rowing together. You know, we want you to be a good citizen who's motivated with success and growth and that you get paid for it when it happens. So that's the secret sauce. So you mentioned... Obviously, with COVID, there's a lot that's happened in the last 18 years. <laughs> Looking back, it feels kind of surreal at the sort of the, the wave and the swing of the pendulum. Physicians, m- many times, who are what I'll call owner-operators, their clinicians as well as owners, have, have felt very intimidated by managing the logistics of doing business in a time of pandemic. So talk a little bit about how you have and, and your how NSBC has processed that for the their the physicians under their organization and how, what part of the value prop there. 
Yeah, that was a lot. You know, look, you, you, I, I told people right from the beginning, hey, look, this is my first pandemic. So if you have ideas that are better than mine, you know, the suggestion box is open. So, you know, feel free, you know, like it's we're going to learn as we go here. You know, the early innings of what represents elective care and what is urgent care that keeps people out of the emergency rooms and hospitals, right? So, you know, we had vastly different views. As MSO, we weren't really allowed. We we had to work with the medical directors and you tell us what represents urgent care. And, you know, as national organizations disagreed on that, so did individual states. So we had different impact, right? Because the more draconian the view of like, hey, look, we need to shut it down and not do anything. Obviously, the more financial impact in a negative way in that part of the business and the more liberal, like, look, I, I know I'm keeping people out of the ER. These patients need these services for continuity of care on opiate management. If they're on low dose, stable regimens, you know, I need to be open. So it, it differed a little. We, I would say that the for the most part, we were able to get consensus on, on like what we agreed to. So that was helpful. The first thing I did is we eliminated our entire sales force day one. I mean, the one advantage I had as a clinician is I could see where we're going. I, I think one of, you know, everyone has, if you describe your superpower, what is your superpower? Well, for me, is like I knew really right away, there was no sales reps going to go into offices. Almost the day that we lost the NCAA tournament, I had eliminated the sales force. I did it before I even told our private equity sponsor. And I think it's rare that they're playing catch up to me. You know, it's usually they're kind of like, Hey, where do you think on the expense line here? Or where are we with this? In this case, they were like, okay, you know, like you, you would know better. So we got rid of re- anywhere we could eliminate costs that were not going to be of value to the organization for the next year or so we did. We were very decisive on it. And I felt it was the fair thing to do for people to get them in line for benefits fast. I, it, it's not that I was being heartless. It's just that I knew there was no way I could save your job. I could slow play this for six months, but like you're going into no offices. Nobody's taking you in. That industry had been changing with pharma sales reps getting less and less access to doctors anyway, and COVID just sealed the deal, right? So we look, you know, dollar for dollar, the, you can't, as my CFO likes to say all the time, you know, we can't cut our way to prosperity, but we ran very lean across the board. We did it. You know, we try to do it scientifically uh, with objective data on encounter volume and staffing relative to others who are doing encounter volume. It's not, it's not always easy to make staffing models because there's nuanced points of different providers just taking different stylistically. But we try to get rid of luxury items and make sure that we were like providing good care, but running lean. And we did that in every department that supports them, whether it's compliance and HR, we, we made cuts. You know, we did what we had to do. And then we started making pay cuts. By the third quarter of last year, I docked everyone's pay based on your base pay amount. I took the biggest pay cut. I just said, look, I'm going to take a 35% pay cut for 90 days. And everyone incrementally lower than me will take less. Even doctors, we, we capped, you know, even though doctors make more than administrators based on their base comp, I, I used a low number, but I asked everyone to contribute. We're going to pass the, if we're going to get through this as an organization, let's pass the hat. We're all going to be in this together. I think most people responded really well to that. I mean, it's been tough, you know, it's, it's really tough when you see people getting benefits that are, especially for your support staff, you know, like you could make more money staying at home. That's a problem. You know, it's, a, it's still a problem today. I know that's coming to an end and this administration would like you to believe it's so cruel to let these benefits expire. But I have people on in interviewing say, if you don't pay me more than 54,000, why would I go work anywhere? 
you know, like it, it'd be that blunt about it. And so we're still going through it. Staffing is a, is a tremendous challenge right now nationally, not just for our organization, but across the multiple sectors, whether it's McDonald's and, you know, others. Absolutely. Yeah. I've seen the same thing with individual physicians I've talked to, and it is far and away the biggest challenge. And we're seeing these crazy jobs numbers. It's like, you know, 10 million jobs needed and like 10 million people unemployed. And I'm just thinking like, why can't we just do this? And it'll, you know, it'll, it'll play out over time, I suppose, but it has been a totally like dislocated, weird, wonky at every strata. You know, I think it's true, especially in the anesthesia space, which is, you know, we have these site specific challenges. They're canceling surgeries. They need anesthesiologists so bad they can't find them anywhere. And so ORs are shut down as a result, which is crazy. And at the same time, anesthesiologists like getting laid off or furloughed and like it's these are just strange days. Yeah, it's a look, it's our first pandemic, right? For this administration. Like I'm not, you know, I'm I'm an independent voter. I mean, I like I like ideas from from smart people. I don't care which side of the aisle they come from. But, you know, it reminds me of the book Ishmael I read in college. You know, the worst thing you can do during this famine is just keep sending food there. Like Sam Kinison would say in a comedic form, like you're you're ensuring, you know, that this that you're not going to get relocation of people who live in an area that's untenable. And it's the same thing with these benefits. While it is the the right thing to do on the short term, it's ensuring long-term people aren't going back to work and it's ensuring inflation. We're seeing price hikes on employment requests that are going through the roof. You know, people we're competing against hospitals who are not wanting to be transparent about their cost, who are sitting on mountains of cash and now they're overpaying for help because they can, right? So that's hard to compete against when you're in the kind of independent marketplace. I think, you know, New York Times just did an article on transparency this last week and like, yeah, and Biden and they're trying to shut that down. You know, they don't want people to know what the cost differential is. That's been something I've been following for a long time. And uh, I, I have friends on all parts of this equation and it's been really interesting to watch it play out. And people who I know who know the most about insurance say, well, yeah, it looks bad when you see it in a New York Times headline and I'm not justifying it, but I at least understand why it happens. And it's, it usually comes down to some version of, turns out this is complicated. The, the yeah. famous, you know. Yeah, I love that. So. Well, yeah, I could, yeah, that's a whole different podcast. It is. We won't go down that rabbit hole, not this interview. <laughs> I'll resist the urge to hit that softball. So I want to wrap it up here. And I thank you very much for your time today. I'm curious, as you think about the future for your organization and, and for your, the specialty, and even maybe broadly for healthcare, I'll let you take this sort of however you want to take it. What are you most optimistic about? What do you see as like a bright spot on the in the future that is something that is going to be a positive contributor towards your physicians and your organization, towards patient experience? And wh where are things getting better? Because there's so much crappy news out there. <laughs> yeah, I think, look, at the end of the day, I, I think technology on the minimally invasive opportunity to treat patients with musculoskeletal disease get more and more exciting. Whether, whether it's, you know viscose supplementations and biologics, uh, you know, injectables, and whether it be minimally invasive versions of fusion that with much less tissue damage and fast recovery and mild for people who don't need open laminectomy. I think, I think what I see happening in the marketplace of musculoskeletal spine is the lines are starting to get blurry between, is this guy an interventional pain doc or is he a spine surgeon? And and I think we're seeing spine surgeons kind of on the you know, MIS side, the minimally invasive side, start to migrate towards some of the interventional principles, right? And you saw this in cardiology, you know, 25, 30 years ago when interventional cardiology and cardiothoracic surgery had to figure out how are we going to play in the same sandbox and who's going to do what? And, 
And oh, by the way, you know, throw in an interventional radiologist and other specialists. And so I think that I'm most excited about the opportunities to treat musculoskeletal pain and disease in creative ways. Uh, I think, and, and the setting to which you can do that to be more and more easy in and out, whether it's robotic assisted surgeries and, you know, people getting lumbar fusion now staying one night at a hotel and then off they go because of long acting anesthetic or whether it be, you know, through a needle, through a port, we can do amazing things. So that to me by far and away is the tailwind in an aging population, right? Like nobody's believing anytime soon that spine disease is going to wear off with the baby boomer population entering into their eighties and nineties, you know, like we're going to have plenty of spine disease. So I think that's by far and away, the more exciting part of my job is, is uh, saying, Hey, you know, we have a hundred, you know, 1.3 million encounters this year, maybe 70,000 new consults. It gives us a data set that's bigger than anything I'm aware of in the musculoskeletal space. It makes us matter, whether it be to device companies or payers or self-funded companies. I think getting a seat at the table and mapping out how do we, how do we control the spend on healthcare costs? You know, I think I think we can influence maybe four of the top ten costs in our model uh, relative to you know gainfully employed aged people. You know imaging and ER visits and spine surgery and, you know, hospital versus ASC setting. We, we can make a real impact on, on saving people money and giving them options beyond just, Hey, physical therapy or chiropractic failed. Here's your choice. You can either be on an opiate for life, or you can have spine surgery with guarded outcomes. I think that's a pretty great place for us to play in, in terms of a tailwind. And so I think it's going to be an exciting future for us as we probably, and then, you know, sometime in the future, our current sponsor will exit and we'll probably have a sponsor with a bigger appetite and a wider vision as well. So I think that, you know, more growth coming. Awesome. Well, Dr. Doug Weiser, CEO of National Spine and Pain Centers. Thank you very much for joining us today on APM Success. You bet, Justin. Really appreciate the time. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.